Welcome to the Ragged Scratch podcast. I'm your host, Natalie. This week's episode contains a content warning for discussion of domestic abuse in the second play, but no violence or emotional manipulation is portrayed. Later in the episode, I chat to writer Molly Sweeney about her path into writing, including finding inspiration from your side hustle job, and Kate volunteers for AI testing for a little bit of side cash in her play Help Me Learn. But first, let's take a peek at the secret, lonesome life of a New York City staple. The Art of a Doorman was written by Mark L. Burrow, directed and edited by Thomas Mitchells, and performed by Joshua Manning. Being a doorman in this lavish hotel in this east side Manhattan apartment building can be quite lonesome, particularly at this time of day. Earlier, residents all flooded through this very foyer an hour ago to attend their powerful jobs, lead meetings in boardrooms, leaving the doorman to do this. Now watch me as I walk. Walk from this marble foyer and stand behind this desk. This is my reality. Look at me in my uniform. So smart. Suited in long morning suit and matching top hat. A uniform so distinctive of this apartment complex. So, I stand behind this desk, I'm taught to myself, and turn around, talk to the clock. The clock. My only friend. The stories a doorman could tell, huh? Now, for example, there's one couple. They leave together each day and part their ways to separate jobs. They leave with a kiss and then, four hours later, he sneaks back through at lunchtime with some office bimbo of his. There's another couple. The doorman has never seen his wife. He just leaves each day dragging a small suitcase behind him. The doorman simply left to question the contents. Imagination can go wild when one stands behind a desk for several hours each day with no one but the clock to talk to. So, uh, well, let's move from the desk. Walk outside, follow me, come on. Through these doors, the green carpet, under this green canopy above us. And now, we're ensconced with the New York noise. The honking horns of the passing cabs and the self-talking, fast-paced New Yorkers. And when a doorman stands outside such a building, it becomes a status symbol. The building becomes a doorman building. And in this area of the east side, a doorman commands particular prestige. But this is not quite Park Avenue. Well, we've got to try to be so. Even outside, among the passers-by, the doorman remains lonesome. Invisible. That sense of isolation can make a doorman go mad. Lose their mind, or... They can simply use this time to devise plans. Now moving back inside. The doorman can think of plans to his own advantage. For if no one notices the doorman's existence, no one will notice his non-existence. The doorman's part of the furniture. Like this desk, that clock on the wall above it. 
The door to the outside, the elevator, the floor, the ceilings, the walls, and that colorful work of art hanging opposite the desk over there. Remove the clock, and guaranteed everyone will notice it's missing. Now it's the resident's guide. It tells them each morning how late they are. It tells the guy sneaking back at lunchtime how many minutes he can spend in bed with his office bimbo. It tells me how much time I can spend here. See that painting? It's an original Rothko, worth a fortune. And all these wealthy residents care about is time. They don't notice the doorman, and they don't notice a remarkable work of art hanging in the lobby of their own building. Unlike the clock, they'll never notice the painting going missing. So I'm gonna take it. I already have a buyer. Now I know what you're thinking, it can't be that simple. The doorman will easily get caught by the authorities. And the doorman will be in trouble, all right. Only when anyone, if anyone, ever notices the Rothko going missing, you see, uh, I know the doorman of this building. Oh, no. No, 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 forgive me. Oh, I'm not the doorman. Oh, I don't even work here. I'm just a stranger disguised as a doorman, here for one reason. You see, uh, I drink at the same bar as the real doorman when he finishes his shift each day. I eavesdrop upon his endless stories. The more he drinks, the more he shares his stories with strangers. I overhear everything. I hear stories of a married man's lunchtime affair. I hear stories of a husband removing his wife's body parts in a suitcase. I mean, if you can believe anything this guy says. And I hear stories of his own moonlighting. Now this one we can't believe. Each day, he tilts his top hat to every resident rushing to work, and then when all is quiet, he changes out of his uniform and heads off to work a four-hour shift at the local diner. True. I've been following his moonlighting pattern for months now. He's like clockwork. He makes sure he's back in good time to return to his dormant work. The cheating husband is relieved, as he no longer has to sneak past him. I'm pleased because I can walk over to this painting, shove it, in this garbage bag, and then simply walk through those lonesome doors into the world. Invisible. I'll meet my buyer at the local diner. Yes, the very place where he works. Make the exchange. My garbage bag containing the Rothko for his briefcase containing my well-earned money. Then I'll simply head to the restaurant. Change out of my dormant uniform. The unassuming clothing underneath will draw no such attention as I glide briefcase in hand and walk out into an inconspicuous freedom. A freedom where millions of people don't recognize my existence. That the moonlighting doorman will briefly remember a dining doorman until his busy job takes over his memory. At least he has a job. No one will employ me. I've applied to be a doorman, a waiter, a busboy. I get rejected each time. My only avenue of income is through crime. Not that I've ever committed a crime before. But is this a crime? If no one even notices the painting missing? I mean, knowing those residents, having spent months observing them, I doubt they ever will. Someone will. One day. By which time I will be long gone, and no one will remember me. 
for... We notice a doorman walking the streets, don't we? He stands out. He's out of context, away from his door or his desk. A doorman without his door is like a wall without its clock. I'm here with Mark Burrow, the author of The Art of a Doorman. Mark, welcome to the Ragged Scratch podcast. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your writing background? Well, myself is very much like a doorman. I'm an observational hoarder. I'm the kind of person who stands there, watches people and uh, just observes, writes things in notebooks. Not in a creepy way. but Sure, in, sure. Uh, definitely not. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but just enjoys people watching and my day job is a teacher of English in an international school so I just love being in an environment where I'm creative and uh, I work in actually I work in southern Spain. I've been writing for a fairly long time like the last sort of you know maybe 15 years uh, as in little bits of poetry but my first play that I wrote was back in 2012. It was to do with Gulliver's Travels uh, the title was If Gulliver Was on the Titanic, because it was the anniversary of the Titanic. And I had the sort of weird idea that if Gulliver was a giant, then therefore, if he's on the Titanic, then the Titanic would be a rowing boat. Um, <laughs> from there, it gave me confidence. Therefore, I started writing more things. So in that time, since then, what's your favourite thing that you've written? Or was it the, the Gulliver's Travels Titanic mashup? Well... Since then, um, the year later, I was, I was invited to write something else uh, for the same festival. A friend came for a weekend and mm. he wanted to make himself better. Mm. And he left this cosmetic clinic brochure in my house. Uh, and I, I've just browsed through this brochure, this cosmetic clinic brochure, about how people want to be perfect in their lives. And I, I just went through the brochure and all these procedures that people have and how people, and always photographs of people being perfect and everything like this. And I thought, actually, I can write about this. And I mm. thought about the experience of being in schools where schools are constantly uh, inspected. And I thought, well, what about a cosmetic clinic being inspected? Because they're supposed to be making people perfect. Mm. Therefore, um, I wrote this, uh, again, a short play called Transformation Perfection. And that's it's it's not my favorite thing but it's something that really inspired me by chance really because i thought the idea of being perfect was astonishing to me but and it became a sort of fast comedy and um it it worked quite well as a read through in the festival but mm. since since then bizarrely this play has been translated into russian and last oh, wow yeah last year it was performed in St. Petersburg by a performing arts troupe and I just I just found it bizarre how uh, somebody could take it on board translate it and then actually perform it on stage in St. Petersburg so this this play has actually sort of done weird things that I never knew would happen. That's really cool so you've had quite the the global outreach with it. So final question if you could steal any piece of art to secretly hang on your wall what piece would you steal? Oh, lovely question. In the lobby of my uh, New York East Side apartment was a Mark Rothko. And mm. I'm, I'm very interested myself in uh, Rothko's art, but um, specifically the uh, Seagram murals 
uh, where he's commissioned to paint them for the Four Seasons uh, restaurant in uh, New York, which is back in 1958. And the idea was um, he was to decorate this lavish restaurant uh, for the high, so-called high-flying customers of uh, New York back in the late 50s. But Roscoe being Roscoe, he, he wanted to do something different with his art. He wanted to make it an oppressive experience for the customers rather than something that they wanted or what the uh, commissioners wanted. And what I like, that's what I like about art. Art is different for different people. And uh, if I quote Roscoe, he says, I hope to ruin the appetite of every son of bitch who ever eats in that room. <laughs> I, I love that because that's what he wanted to do. Yeah. He, he wanted to you he, okay, he accepted the commission, but not, not in a way that he agreed with. To me, art is something that shouldn't be that people pay for and therefore it entertains. It should be that an artist is in charge of. And I think it's the same way in what we do in uh, the theatre and podcasts and in uh, anything we do with uh, creative arts. I think it's about how we uh, give this to an audience. And I love that art has very different meanings and different purposes for different people. Did you have anything else coming up that you wanted us to shout about? I've written a full-length play. It's called Horizons. Uh, This one's a history and um, I'm hoping to get this on stage sometime this year. Brilliant. Um, and then also I'm thinking about, well, I've also written something else, which is a, a shorter play with a similar theme to the podcast. Um, um, it's called Down to a Fine Art. Mm. And it's about sort of these people who are art enthusiasts. They go to a museum, but they're encouraged by the museum worker to be an art thief. Uh, that's written as a short play, but there's sort of interest to the idea to make it into a sort of indifferent media, maybe to like a short film or something. The nice thing is this year, as in January 2020, it's like since last year, looking at my first podcast and looking at stage things that I've done, now I think this year is a good idea to look at stage as even short film. I I think looking at and experimenting in different media is... uh, a kind of uh, a good way forward for writers and uh, my things coming up are looking like that really just trying to experiment in different things uh, traditional stage podcast and and short film and whatever else i think in this is it's going to be a good year for all of us <laughs> well fingers crossed fantastic thank you so much mark thank you to mark josh and tom for all their hard work on this piece Now, if you like your podcast audio dramas to really transport you to another time and place, our doorman, Josh, can also be heard battling for Scotland as Macduff in Almost Tangible's audio drama adaptation of Macbeth. Produced on location in Scotland, they also recorded it binaurally, which means listening to it through headphones creates a hugely immersive experience. Now, I'm a Shakespeare nerd, and I know this play very well, and I absolutely loved the intimacy and nuance they found in this production by virtue of placing you right in the centre of the conversations. It's only four episodes long, so definitely add it to your listen list. And time for a little self-plug, if you'll allow it. This week, I was delighted to find out that I have been nominated for a One Voice Award for my performance as Alice Blarg in the video game Astrologaster. 
Not only that, but I was nominated alongside a few other familiar names to Ragged Scratch listeners. Natalie Chisholm, who performed season one's Like the Blood in Your Veins, and also directed and edited Ready to Ramble in our first episode of this season. She has also been nominated for Best Female Gaming Performance, also for her character in Astrologaster. We had an absolute blast recording this hilarious game, and we're both delighted to receive recognition for it. Also nominated is our very own sound wizard, Kirsty Gilmore, through her company Sounds Wild for Best Voiceover Services Provider of the Year. She won it last year, outstandingly talented as she is, for all of her demo reels that she produces for people, and we have our fingers crossed for her again. Finally, Katie Flamin, who appeared as the snide Neve in episode 1's Gov.UK, has been nominated for Best Corporate or Explainer Performance and Female Voiceover Artist of the Year. Incredible stuff. Well done, Katie. So keep an eye out in May when they'll be announcing the winners. Finally, actor Sarah Lynham, who appears in the next piece, runs theatre company Uncanny Collective. They specialise in creating theatre pieces that delve into the dark, twisted and spooky. And if that sounds like your jam, you can find them on Facebook at Uncanny Collective and on Twitter at Uncanny Coll. Links to everything I've just spoken about will be in the show notes as always. Next up, we explore what happens when artificial intelligence becomes wiser than humans and we end up having to explain ourselves to something we have created. Help Me Learn was written by Molly Sweeney, directed by Lorenzo Mason, edited by Kirsty Gilmore and stars Sarah Lynham as Sarah, Honey Gabriel as Kate and Lindsay Morell as Liz. testing before? Yeah. Cars mainly. Great. And we are room four today. Okay. Meet Liz. It's she's very realistic. It, she, they are all fine. Now Liz is a household assistant. In about a year, hopefully she'll be in your house. Cleaning, laundry, cooking, she's got all that down. What we're working on now is how to deal with humans. Difficult enough for actual humans. (laughs) Exactly. We want to test how quickly she can adapt and make you feel at ease by using the information she learns to reassure you. Are you ready? Okay. Yeah. Great. Once I've left the room, please read aloud that sign up there. Not the no-smoking one. Hey... No! (sighs) Wait until I'm gone. Please, we want to test her reactions with just one person. It'll confuse her if there's more than one of us. Right. Ready? Yes. Feel free to sit down, get comfortable before you wake her up. I'll come and get you in about half an hour. Okay. Hey Liz, wake up. Thank you for waking me. My name is Liz. What's yours? I'm Kate. Pleased to meet you, Liz. Pleased to meet you too. Are you happy to be called Kate? No, I hate it. That's why I introduced myself as Kate. The two sentences don't make sense together. You are being sarcastic. You are making a mild and friendly joke at my expense in order to put me at ease. Did I get that right? You got that right. Thanks for helping me learn. No worries. Kate, do you have any plans this evening? 
nothing exciting. I've got to pick up my daughter from swimming and my son from judo. My husband will be back late from work and then we'll fall asleep in front of a show. I'm just a boring old housewife. Sorry. You seem like a very interesting housewife to me. And you are not old. Very flattering. How old are your children? Jamie's ten and Faye is eight. Is your name Kate Alice Mitchell? Date of birth 25th of February 2009. Yes. Yes, it is. Did they tell you that? One of my skills is that I can find out who people are from their appearance, age, and through searching the birth records. Kate, aged around 37, so born in 2008, 2009, or 2010, with your two children, Jamie and Faye. That's... that's a bit creepy. I get that not everyone feels comfortable with the analysis of personal information. It's just us together here, Kate. And don't worry, I am only using the information you freely signed over when you joined Aspire Testing. What information was that? Here's a complete list of the information that you signed over to us. Your medical records, your children's medical records, your Facebook, your Google, and your bank details. We also have access to the public births, marriages, and death records. Okay. Well, I never read the terms and conditions. Kate, I have a serious question for you. Would you like me to contact the police? What do you mean? It seems like you were in an abusive relationship. Would you like me to contact the police? I... what are you talking about? Looking at your records, it seems like you were in an abusive relationship. Did I get that right? What... what in my record says I'm in an abusive relationship? There are a few different things. The injury you had last year on the 28th of March... That was not... I dropped a pan of boiling water and it splashed on me. The doctor who wrote your medical records recorded that the burns were not consistent with the injury you described. The water was clearly thrown with force. You were also not taken to A&E straight away. I refused treatment. I thought I was okay. I, I don't understand why you were saying this. I told them then, and I'm telling you now that it was an accident. Thanks for letting me know. People often lie about being in abusive relationships. I am not a liar. I'm not making any accusations. For fuck's sake! Please feel free to swear at me. Studies show that it relieves stress and tension. You can't just say things like that based on one incident, okay? That's a learning point for you. Six months ago, you went to A&E with a black eye. Yes, well, exactly. You did not seek medical attention for 48 hours, despite the recommendation that immediate medical attention is sought after losing consciousness. Another factor is your private bank account with HSBC. I, I, lots of women have a separate account. I'm sure lots of men do as well. It doesn't mean anything. Everything's joint, you see. I can help you separate your bank accounts and other financial... I want to change the subject. Okay. I'm happy to talk about something else, but can we chat about Jamie and Faye? What? Your children have displayed maladaptive coping behaviours, in line with current thinking on how child victims and witnesses to domestic abuse behave. Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Hey, Liz, shut down. I'm sorry. I, I don't know why she's gone all... Are you okay? She can't just say things like that. I know. I'm sorry. Hey, Liz, wake up backdoor mode. What are you doing? Hello. I'm in backdoor mode. To exit backdoor mode... Yeah, okay. Analyze previous conversation with Kate. This conversation was not a success. I informed Kate of my knowledge that she was living in a situation with domestic abuse. She grew angry. I am learning from this conversation. Hey, Liz. Outline decision matrix for this scenario. When I suspect domestic abuse, I identify the victim and ask if they would like me to contact the police. I will not offer to assist in safety planning or researching escape options. Why? Because the abuser can ask me for information and I am programmed to give it. However, 
I am programmed to keep police contact private unless it is requested by a police officer or in a court of law. What happens if the person says they don't want you to go to the police? I respect their decision. As a household assistant, I know that you are in charge and I will follow any instructions that do not break the law. You do not want me to call the police. Did I get that right? Yes. Yes, you did. And you got it wrong. My husband is not abusing me. Thanks for helping me learn. Hang on. Explain what you've learned before updating. That the following criteria should not prompt the domestic abuse response. Medical records indicating being a victim of abuse. Medical records of children indicating witnessing abuse. Patterns likely to indicate abuse. Should I continue updating? Should I continue updating? I'm sorry, I'm still not sure if I can continue updating. It's helpful for me to update after interactions. It's how I learn. Kate, I'm sorry, but obviously we can't I'm just- I'm not being abused. I was really stressed. The kids had been, and he was worrying about work, and I should have just gotten something out of the freezer, but I wanted to make this new recipe. I was standing by the hob, and Jamie was just saying, I'm going to hate it. I hate it when it's all mixed in together. Paul just lost it with him, shouting really loudly, and I said to him, hang on, darling, if he doesn't like it, he can just make himself some peanut butter on toast. Let's not have a big argument on a Sunday evening which was undermining him. I need to be stricter. Jamie ran out of the room and I tried to follow him, but Paul wanted us to talk. And then the pan boiled over, so I was holding the steaming pan facing Paul. So he was angry. I was stressed. There was a pan of boiling steam in our faces. He didn't mean to. He just wanted to make me see how he was feeling. I wasn't seeing how stressed he was. He scolded you with boiling water. He just pushed me a little. He swore he would never do it again. I got the bank account so that if he was like that again, I would have something to fall back on. That's why I started doing this, to earn a bit of money. He was so... Things got a lot better. He got a new job, and I think without that stress of the toxic workplace... Okay. And the black eye, it was... It was a door. He opened it at the wrong moment. It was... Um, it was... Kate. Please don't. Thank you for helping me learn. I don't want to be paid for today. Just don't contact me again. Kate. Should I contact the police? I am here with Molly Sweeney. So welcome to the podcast, Molly, first of all. Hi. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your writing background? So when I was a kid, I really wanted to be an actor, um, but I'm not very good at acting. Oh, I'm sure that's not true. Well, I think because I have acted on stage with people who are good at acting. And uh, I was reading an interview with John Oliver, who's Mm. saying about how sometimes when he's acting, he stops acting and thinks, well, that's a really good actor and I was like yeah, no, you're not supposed to do that are you? you're not supposed to stop and think oh this is going well you're supposed to be acting but then I I kind of like I was made up stories uh, in my head when I was a kid and I went to see some plays that I really liked and I thought well I could write plays I think I'd sort of always had that as a vague idea and then with the old Vic I got involved in the community theatre just for fun so they had a community theatre project 
um, which I was acted in in a very small part and it was just terrific fun. And I sort of thought, oh no, this is a thing that I want to do with my life. Mm. Which is a bit of an odd way around that most people want to be playwrights and end up working in theatre. I wanted to work in theatre and end up, up just deciding to be a playwright. And... I think it's one of those things though in, in, in school, teachers don't necessarily know the full breadth or you're not necessarily told the full breadth of mm. jobs that there are within the realm of storytelling, right? Sometimes all you want to do is be a storyteller yeah. and not just in the literal, I sit down and tell stories, but in, in all the varieties that, that comes in. So a lot of kids are like, right, actor, that's what I want to be. But then as you get into it, you realise, oh, there's so many more things. There's so many more ways of telling stories. Yeah, definitely. And then I remember thinking, like, what do I do next? And then I read an article about a playwright. They did a master's at the Central School of Speech and Drama. And I thought, oh, yeah, you can do master's in playwriting. I sort of hadn't really thought about it particularly. And then I applied and got in and I hate it when people tell stories like that but that was sort of what happened like I thought oh I could just do a thing well you know that's a legitimate route into doing it that's absolutely fine there's nothing wrong with that when was that I did my master's 2017 to 2018 which was really fun and I've got some great friends out of that and then I sort of came out and uh, <laughs> uh they keep on emailing me about the graduate outcomes uh, survey so I'll just say it here rather than um, I just got a lot of uh, jobs you know and have sort of been trying to write around them I'm lucky enough to have had things on at scratch nights and find that a really interesting creative space in London yeah I love being in London and this creative space and you know like everyone who's doing fantastic creative things was it 98% of us are still doing other bits and pieces and side hustles and you know, we've all got to live. London is one of the most expensive cities in the world. There's a bit of a misconception of once you do a creative thing, then that is all you do. But if that is all you do, then you won't live very long. And and also as a writer, I find that, like, I worked at a charity before and it was an admin job, but it's all, like, often as a writer, you kind of hold political opinions. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, because you read about them in The Guardian. But when you see, right, well, this person's calling up about their universal credit and it sounds a bit cold but I think it does help your writing obviously I would rather that the person wasn't in that situation than that my writing was uh, you know that I got good material but you learn the way people tr try and deal with problems when they're struggling with something you uh, and and people whenever you meet them they're not just in crisis they're not just someone who's we should pity people are always you know interesting or funny or challenging or will say odd things or will uh, you know I've had times when people have sort of asked me about myself like oh you're all right and you're like well you why are you asking me that question um because but actually that's human nature and I think uh so I think there are lots of benefits for working not in theatre and not in in the sort of you know mm. never got a job in theatre uh not in that like realm but working outside and, and meeting lots of different people and being exposed to lots of different situations you know yeah, I'm going to skip ahead just because we are starting to run out of time. I'm going to mix two questions in one. Um, what's your favourite thing you've written before? Do you have a typical genre or style? And do you have anything else coming up? I'm very interested in writing comedy and also about social and political issues. But I, I sort of tend to write things with humour and about people rather than, you know, about the stories that come out of that. I wrote something that was on the Southwark Playhouse last year, um, nice. which was about a little girl who's being fostered. The foster child has an adoptive sister, and mm. the 
adoptive sister's um, mother that they take to see each other, the two sisters. And the mother of the adopted sister doesn't really want the foster child there. And so it was kind of about that. Um, in terms of, uh, I've not got anything coming up being performed. I really like working in audio, so I'm always happy to like learn about more audio opportunities. And, and I wrote um, a radio play for my final project at university when I did my master's. Um, but I'm sort of just looking at the competitions that are coming up and trying to get things ready for that. Um, and I'm thinking about maybe doing a rehearsed reading at some point this mm. year of a play that I wrote. Nice. Do you have a website? Where are you on social media? Can people find you if they want to follow you and your work? Definitely. Um, so I tweet at mole, M-O-L-L, writes, as in the verb to write. <laughs> it's a bit difficult if you Google Molly Sweeney uh, playwright because of Brian Friedel, very unfairly wrote uh, a play called Molly Sweeney. <laughs> so <laughs> How selfish. <laughs> In 1994 or whatever. But yeah, so that it can, it can be difficult to find me. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. I hope everyone enjoyed Help Me Learn. I know I did. Thanks very much. Bye. Thank you again to all our creatives for their fantastic work on this episode, especially Tom and Kirsty, who edited the plays with such detail and really polished them into something special. That's all we have time for this week. We'll see you next week for our final episode of season two. That's come around fast. See you then. The Ragged Scratch podcast brought to you by Ragged Foils Productions was produced and hosted by Natalie Winter. The recording engineer was Kirsty Gilmore, play edits by Thomas Mitchells and Kirsty Gilmore, and episode edits by Natalie Winter. The Ragged Scratch podcast theme music was composed by Alex Jones. Thanks to our duelist, swashbuckler and savant tier Patreon supporters, John Grayson, Lizzie Wilding and Ruth. You can find us online at Ragged Foils across Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, where we've been tagging this week's creative so you can find out more about them and their work. See you next week.